You grab the blanket, girl, I grab the beer. I know a spot not far from here. A little place only four-wheel drives can go. Hello, everybody, and this is Jay with The Back Porch with Jay and Brandon. And we have got a special treat for you today. We are going to be talking with singer-songwriter Dom Flemings, formerly of the Carolina Chocolate Drops. So if you have not heard of Dom Flemings, where have you been? He, he's been around for quite a few years. How are you, Dom? Oh, doing well, doing well. But, but I'm doing great. I've been uh, just hanging around here in North Carolina the past couple of weeks, just been enjoying the sunshine and the, and the wonderful times that I can have down here. Dom, I believe you have uh, won a Grammy in, in the past. Is that correct? That's correct, yep. I, I, I won one Grammy in 2010, uh, the Best Traditional Folk album with the Carolina Chocolate Drops for our album, Genuine Negro Jig. And, um, yeah, that was we, we got a Grammy for that one. Then we got a nomination for our album, Leaving Eden, which came out in 2012. Okay. And, you know, I had talked to you earlier through uh, through Twitter and Facebook and, and social media, and I'd mentioned to you, you know, I'm... I'm I think I heard of, of the Carolina Chocolate Drops through PBS. I was uh, scrolling through some, you know, through the channels, and and then y'all were on there doing a few songs. I said, you know, this this is kind of different. I like this, you know, and that kind of turned me on, you know, to the Carolina Chocolate Drops, and, you know, I've just kind of been listening to them ever since. Yeah, we, we've had a lot of uh, really wonderful times uh, being able to get out there and, and put uh, a lot of, old-time uh, Piedmont string band music out there, and um, and then focusing on uh, talking about and explaining the history of black string bands in, in the United States. And uh, when we first started in 2005, there was there were a couple of disparate pieces of, uh, of scholarship talking about black string bands, but all that stuff hadn't been brought together in a single place. And so at the Chocolate Drops, we were twofold, one trying to put out some really hot string band music, but then, two, you're trying to put, get the idea out there that black string bands and also black involvement in country music and, and a lot of different types of music considered, you know, white music and in most uh, books it was was something that, that was there. And, you know, and, and there was just a, you know, it, there was a need for it. So to be able to get out there and be educated young black people talking about it was something that was really important to the group very early on and, and that's right. something I'm, I'm very proud to have been a, a part of yeah and I, I think it's all taken off real nicely as well like i said you, you've got a grammy now and you know and there's not many people that i've spoke with that didn't know who you was you know so that oh, that's but... and that's that's a good thing oh man that's, that's a very good thing I'm, I'm i'm glad that it's it's gotten out there you know you just you, you get out there and you pound the pavement and you just hope for the best and i'm, I'm just so glad that that it you know i've made i've made some sort of effect out there over over the years well i'll tell you what dom we're going to go ahead and play your first song it's this is called san francisco baby what can you tell us about this song San Francisco baby. I wrote that about a beautiful woman I met in the town of San Francisco. And uh, when I wanted to sit down and write some new songs for the album, I decided to try to write a, a song that was uh, had a bunch of references to the, the city of San Francisco. And uh, you know, I threw a little bit of uh, Jimmy Rogers in there and some of those different ideas. And and on uh, on the album, I decided to use uh, Keith Gans on the uh, six string banjo. He mm-hmm. never played the six string banjo before great guitar player but um playing on the guitar banjo and then also uh brian horton playing on the uh 
I believe he's on the tenor saxophone on that one, just to get a little bit of that West Coast jazz feel. Well, I tell you what, we're gonna go ahead and check it out and play it for our listeners. Speed, mm, mm, mm. <laughs> San Francisco, baby, honey, I don't care. San Francisco woman, I begin to see you everywhere. Now I was walking down the street, I sort of caught your eye. Fool on me, it's someone else in disguise. Walking through the park, I thought I saw your smile. Fool on me, this feeling's mighty vile, but sweet. San Francisco baby, we met on a summer spree. San Francisco woman. Oh yes, I do decree Now I was walking down along Bought a crooked mile Try as I might, I couldn't crack a smile I threw up my hands and I left it to fate Brought me sweet you shine like the golden gate But sweet San Francisco, baby Oh, what else you got to say? San Francisco woman Don't leave me here by the bay Cause you three times ten, so I know you're ready to go. Let's jump in the wagon, go down to Mexico. We bump our heads and it'll make us laugh. And then we'll buy up the whole town for a dollar and a half. But sweet San Francisco, baby. Oh, San Francisco, babe. I mean, San Francisco, babe. Skeeting, scope, skeetly doo. Skeetly doo, beep, I beep. Skeeting, scolding, skeetly do, skeetly do, deep by deep. Skeet body need a door, beep body need a door, skeet body need a door, deep by deep. But I don't think I got skeeting, don't deep by deep, but deep by the skeet by deep, 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 yeah. San Francisco, baby, oh, San Francisco, babe, I mean, San Francisco, babe. Sweet San Francisco, baby, we met on a summer spree. San Francisco woman, oh yes, I do decree. Now I was walking down along about a crooked mile. Try as I might, I couldn't crack a smile. I threw up my hands and I left it to fate. Brought me sweet you shine like the golden gate, but sweet. San Francisco, baby, what else you got to say? San Francisco, woman, don't leave me here by the bay. Cause you's three times ten, so I know you're ready to go. Let's jump in the wagon, go down to Mexico. We bump our heads and it'll make us laugh. And then we'll buy up the whole town for a dollar and a half. But sweet San Francisco, baby, oh, San Francisco, babe, I mean, San Francisco, babe, oh, yes. San Francisco, babe, I mean, San Francisco, babe. Hey, this is Brandon Newman from Newman & Webb Law Firm in Trenton, Tennessee. What makes a great musician is what makes a great lawyer, the ability to tell a story. And at Newman & Webb Law Firm, we know how to tell your story. We handle all kinds of litigated cases. That means cases that are handled in court. So if you know someone or if you have a case and you need to speak to an attorney, call Newman & Webb Law Firm in Trenton 
at 855-2972 or check us out on Facebook because we can tell your story. All right, and we're back, and that was San Francisco Baby from Dom Flemons. And Dom, what is, uh, what's the name of your record label? Oh, the, the label that I'm on is Music Maker Relief Foundation. Okay. And Music Maker Relief Foundation is a nonprofit organization that helps out traditional Southern blues and, uh, and old time and folk musicians. And so it's, uh, it's like, uh, it's kind of like an organization, uh, I guess similar to like something like the Jazz Foundation or something where on a case by case situation, uh, you know, Music Maker, uh, creates a, a relationship with artists that they believe in and want to help get, get their music out and they, they help them sometimes with uh, money, other times with uh, with uh, you know more specific needs. Like some some musicians are you know you know the thing the idea is that is that so so many musicians and so many people in in, in the United States live in such a state of, of poverty right. that it's it's just it's staggering. And so Music Maker tries to tries to do its little part to help out with uh, musicians that it, it, it believes in and wants to get behind and, and help them out with with uh, the parts of their lives that they, they need help with. Uh, some some musicians are, you know, like uh, there's one musician in particular I work with, he, he needs help with uh, uh, his heating oil. And so Music Maker helps out with the heating oil. And, and you know, and they also help out with getting, getting the musician CDs and and helping them, you know, get, get gigs in their local communities uh, in a way that they might not be able to get on their own. It sounds like a pretty good organization. You know, there's not a whole lot of organizations that, that are out there now that, that actually, you know, help musicians and artists. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it, it's one of those things where it, it's a very, you know, it's a very uh, tricky sort of thing where um, where it, it's like, let me think how to put it. Well, like for me as, as, a, as a musician trying to use my, my own, uh, like, Cloud as you know, having a, a Grammy and stuff like that. I've been on the board since 2009. Like I'm not, I'm not one of the recipients of any of the, the programs of Music Maker personally. Right. But being able to uh, use the, the prestige I've gotten to help uh, shine a light on some of these musicians, that, that's one of the things I try to do, you know, with my music and, and, and interpreting the music and then also just trying to do it personally by getting to know the different artists that work with Music Maker and, and try to spread the word whatever means I can through my channel. Right, and one thing, you know, we try to stress on this program is how important music is, especially to kids, you know. Oh, absolutely. You know, children can watch you, you know, sit up there and play the bones or the banjo or whatever it may be, and, and, you know, and then get inspired by it and say, hey, you know, one day I want to do that. And then, you know, you've set a goal, you know, if he can do it, I can do it possibly. Absolutely. You know, so, you know, that's one thing we, we stress on this program also because, you know, most of the music venues, you know, like the bar type scene and, you know, places that really aren't kid friendly. And, you know, that's one thing we stress on this program is, you know, we, we need more family friendly venues. Because the, these children are the future of music. Oh, that's absolutely correct. I, I think that that's that's one of the things that I, you know I was very fortunate when I was coming up that there was still uh, a strong music program in the in the schools when I was uh, coming up in in Arizona. That's where I'm from originally, and that's one of the things that I think about now, and that most kids don't have access to music through just a standardized program. Right. And and that that's something that. You know, uh, uh, even if I think about the old-time musicians I work with, like um, like a fellow like Joe Thompson or another fellow like Boo Hanks, mm-hmm. and I think about 
the stories they tell me and the fact that they grew up with their family playing music and that they had music with their own households and their own communities, that was something that was really a strong part of what got them to do music themselves and that's some of their best memories that they have growing up and and that's something that you can't take that away exactly. from anybody once you have those experiences. And that's very true and, and looking over your bio here, um, one person that kind of stands out to me as, as one of your influences was Carl Perkins. And of course, Carl Perkins oh, used yeah. to be a local in this area. He was, you know, born and raised in, in the Jackson area. With You know, most people that we do talk to and interview, just about every one of them bring up Carl Perkins. You know, I don't oh, think, right. and especially the people in this area, I don't think they realize how big Carl was. You know, a lot oh, of them man. just, you know, a, a lot of them here just see him as, you know, he's the guy that wrote Blue Suede Shoes. He's the guy that helped, you know, helped Elvis get famous, you know, things like that. They don't look at him as, you know, the star that he was. Well, you know, Carl Perkins, is, he, he's sort of an instant fellow in the way that he, let me think of it, how to describe him, because he was one of the guys that really first got me started when I first got into a lot of old-time rock and roll. You know, I was, right. uh, I, I saw a documentary on the history of rock and roll that was on PBS when I was, when I was younger, and he was one of the guys that really, really moved me in the way that... Actually, I'll tell you one one story he told in that documentary. He talked about how he and Chuck Berry at one point were laughing and saying, you know, I wonder if one day if the music that we're putting there, it, out out there, is doing as much work as the as the people out there in, in Washington, D.C. are doing <laughs> when, they're, when they're trying to bring people together with the... in, in politics. Right. And, and I, I, I think that's one of those things that's, that's extremely important in the way that Carl, Carl is one of those, he's one of those transitionary people where even though he's known for blue suede shoes, he also could do a dead ringer for Hank Williams or Lefty Frizzell too. Exactly. And he had this, this country music background, but he had this mixture of his own musical experiences to, to bring in some of the blues and to bring in a lot of the, the R&B to, He'll be one of the pioneers of rock and roll. Uh, he's he's one of those guys. That oh, absolutely. He was he was by far one of the pioneers. And here, uh, a few weeks ago, I had the pleasure of hanging out with uh, W. S. Holland, which was originally Carl Perkins' drummer. And he told me he he was also the drummer of Johnny Cash for pretty much all of Johnny's career. And also, he was Johnny's uh, manager. But uh, I got to sit down and talk with him for a little while and. He told me this amazing story that, you know, he was, uh, he was working for this little, you know, company in Jackson, Tennessee. He was, uh, an HVAC guy working on air conditioners. And at night, he didn't necessarily, you know, like drinking and things like that, but he would go to the bar to try to chase women and, and things like that, you know. And, and he said a lot of places he would go to where Carl Perkins would be in there playing. And he said that, uh, a lot of times he would be standing on the side of the stage while Carl and them was playing. And W.S. said he would, you know, just start kind of keeping time on the side of the on the side of the stand-up bass, you know. Well, he said one night Carl called him on the phone and said, W.S., I want you to go buy a set of drums or borrow a set of drums from somebody, and Thursday we're going to Sun Studios. And W.S. <laughs> W.S. told him he said, man, I've never played a set of drums in my life. And he said, well, he said I watch you and you can keep time on the side of that bass. I know you can play drums. Get you a set of drums. Meet me Thursday morning. We're going to Sun Records in Memphis. 
So he did. He borrowed a set of drums. He said he got to, you know, play around with them a couple of days at the house and stuff. And he said they loaded up, and that Thursday morning they went to Sun Records, and he said that exact day they recorded Blue Suede Shoes. Man. So he said Carl and Johnny both had nicknamed him Flute, W.S. Flute Colland, because it was a flute that he just picked up, you know, a couple of drumsticks and played like he did. And that just kind of oh, that, that just kind of amazed me, you know, to think how cards just fell in place for him, and and now you know he he's known as the the father of the drums. Oh, that's amazing. I mean, that's and that that's the that's some of the beauty of, of a lot of that, that music. You know, there was there's a there's a book that just came out, a photo book talking about the birth of rock and roll, and um, from a company called Dust Digital. And one of the things that the the guy that put the book together really wanted to hit home was that rock and roll didn't come from a vacuum and it was born from regional styles. A lot of these people who played in smaller jip joints and things like that, that and that it evolved into something bigger over a long period of time. And, you know, that's one of the things I always love about Carl Perkins' music is you can hear you can hear that jip joint. You can hear that right. that sound of somebody, you know, playing in the bar, but also they can take it onto a big stage and and just the way that you know, the way that you know, Carl put those licks together and all that, you can you can just hear it. All the all the different influences coming together to make uh, a, to me a very phenomenal like a phenomenal catalog of music. You know, like exactly. for me, Carl Perkins, my favorite song is the song Dixie Fry. Uh-huh. I think that's just one of his great numbers. And you know, somebody else that stands out to me as a I wouldn't say that he started or pioneered rock and roll, but I would say that he helped, you know, pave the path, would be Buddy Holly. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we've talked oh, yeah, about this on the show before, and you look at Buddy Holly's two-year career in music and look at all the songs that he put out and how many hits he had just within a two-year time frame. Oh, man, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's amazing that that, that, that you know, that he was able to, to pull that off. And again, he's, he's really similar to Carl in the way that he has that same sort of influence where he's kind of a, a country dance band guy, and then he starts incorporating a lot of those uh, elements of uh, R&B and rock and roll, and then for Buddy, you know, Elvis, to create a brand new sound. And also, I guess, people like Les Paul, uh, right. Louis Jordan, a lot of those sounds, too, kind of creep in. You know, actually, you mentioned one of my songs on the new record, uh, I Can't Do It Anymore. Uh-huh. That's a song I, I did that I tried to do it in that sort of style of uh, of old-time rock and roll with that, that type of uh, lead guitar, you know, that type of guitar playing. Right. You know, in, kind of that rockabilly that. sound. Yeah, get, getting a little bit of that rockabilly sound, a little bit of the R&B sound. I wanted to try to get something in between. <clears throat> There's that one, and the, the kind of the, the counterpoint to that that I put on the record was uh, the version of Have I Stayed Way Too Long that I put on there as well. And, uh, yeah, those two songs there have a lot of the influence of people like Carl Perkins and Buddy Holly in the way it's just a real clean raw guitar sound uh interspersed within uh you know those those two songs are country music and and a little bit of r&b exactly i'll tell you what let's go ahead and play that song for everybody i can't do it anymore long black hair dark brown eyes how did i know you'd be the devil in disguise whoa I can't do it 
in my car Broke my banjo So I got to play my guitar Whoa 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 baby Whoa baby Oh baby Oh baby I can't do it The Jackson, Tennessee area is a hotbed of extremely talented musical performers. Join WNBJ for the Exit 82 show. You'll see and hear an amazing variety of original music performed by Jackson area talent. Exit 82 airs every Saturday following Saturday Night Live on Jackson's NBC 39. All right, and we're back, and that was another great song. So, Dom, tell us, you know, growing up, you, you talked about your musical influences, but what, what made you decide to get into music yourself? What made you first, you know, start playing the drums or the guitar or whatever it may have been? Well, you know, I just uh, I just really got into good songs. You know, like uh, in Phoenix, there's, there's a, there, there was a particularly strong oldies uh, station that was that was out there uh, called Cool 94.5, and they just used to play all this 50s and 60s uh, music on the radio, and I just loved this, that sound. And you know, there was there was you know when I was coming up, there were people like you know Green Day and Offspring and Sublime, and you know like a, a lot of punk and indie bands. But a lot of that 50s and 60s stuff really moved me. And when I started learning more about the history of the music. That got me interested in learning the songs, and so I did that for a lot of years. I just learned, I just learned songs from people's repertoires, and um, also a very strong period of reissues of old music coming out, going into the, I think from the, gosh, all the way from the early '90s, going into the 2000s, and even into now. There's a lot of stuff being reissued all the time, but right. it was a real strong wave of, of reissuing stuff on CD for the first time, right. or at least compiled into one place. And so, uh, and this is also before the internet became big too. So I had to go out to a record store, find a CD, or go to the library and find a CD, learn more about the musicians. And so I, I physically went to went to these places, learned the songs, or I, I got the songs in my ear, and I, I just it, I just let it come. Just you know, I immersed myself in those sounds. And so when I hear a, a particular song, or I want to write a particular song, there's a certain style and a feel and a, and a lot of nuances that 
I just have in my ear already because I've already heard it. Right. You know, and, and one thing, I, you know, in this area, one thing that is starting to, to get popular again is vinyl records. Oh, yes. You know, a lot of people are actually going to the older music stores or, you know, checking out your, uh, you know, consignment stores and things like that and, and trying to find old original records. And uh, so they're, they're really starting to get popular again. And, you know, to me, that's one of the best sounding forms of media there ever was for music. Well, you know, the funniest thing, like, uh, I, you know, I've collected vinyl records, uh, gosh, I, like since, I'm going to say like since the, the late 90s I got into it. So at a time when, uh, you know, record players and things were kind of falling out of favor, I feel like now post-digital revolution, and I think that now we've gotten to a spot where there's so much music available that people, people and I don't a small demographic. I don't want to say it's everybody, but there's at least a mind to move away from everything being available and taking a physical item and having the the physical music in front of you. Exactly. And I think the vinyl record always has appeal. As long as people want a vinyl record, it has appeal. And I found that over the years, there there have been companies, uh, particularly like Crosley, which has been around for years. Right. You know. They're actually, they've been putting these little suitcase record players out that, again, like people that would be my parents' age or maybe like my halfway between my parents and my grandparents' age, it's the same sort of marketing they use for those, for, for those vinyl collectors, the people in the late 50s and early 60s. They sold these little suitcase record players. Mm-hmm. And when I started seeing those hitting the market, and then when I started seeing those in my clothing stores and things like that, I knew something was up because it had been about, you know, 10, 12 years that I'd been collecting vinyl when no one was caring about that that much. Right. And to me, to see that there's enough interest to at least, you know, like, we, again, when we talked about the kids learning about music, I think that when kids, you know, and again, kids have the most <laughs> disposable income out of anybody to buy music because they can <laughs> talk to their folks about it. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and uh, I just I just see it's really amazing to see this thing kind of flowering into a new thing, you know, I, and I just, it's just so exciting. It uh, is. And... Record Store Day, you know, that, that and that's the thing, too. There's so many record stores still around. You know, once Tower Records and the big stores went down, everybody kind of felt like, oh, there's no record stores left. But oh, every that's city right. has at least one, every city has at least one or two record stores hidden away somewhere. Exactly. You know? <laughs> well, and even and in, the, in the small town of Milan where I'm at here, we have got a an old music store downtown. And, of course, he doesn't yeah. just sell records and tapes. I remember when I was little, he was a Ticketmaster outlet. He had cassettes and records and, you know, just whatever you wanted. But he also sells instruments, uh, you know, banjos, mandolins, acoustic, electric guitars, drums, whatever it may be. But when you walk in that store, you know, it, it feels like you're walking back in time. And to this day, yeah. he is still in the middle of the, sto- you know, of the store. It takes up probably a quarter of his whole store. He has still got his record racks out there and they are packed full of records that's so it, it, it's so it's so exciting to see that it, it's like almost seeing the generation gap between uh vinyl collectors slowly closing you know and um you know i, I don't have uh, the lofty aspirations to think that vinyl is going to be the only thing like the only medium because you know the one thing that i know about the record too is that it's once you get more than 10 or 15 of them, it's real pain to keep them around. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. They do it's take like, up a lot of space. You know, and so, you know, it, 
if young kids get into it, I'm sure they'll figure that out, or you know, or they or they'll just reject it completely because they'd rather go to their iPad or go to go exactly. on to, uh, Spotify or Pandora. And I think that that I think that that sort of uh, accessibility, I think that's never going to go away. Right. But at the same time, I think that again, like vinyl records, I think if you know if you're fanatical enough about an album, you'll buy the vinyl record of it. You know? Exactly. Like uh, you know, I've got like, I've got records that I have digital for years, and then said I'd like to get it. I, I just want to get the you just want it on vinyl physical thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know, because I've it done the same thing. So good, you know? and, exactly. and that's really exciting to see that kind of change, kind of change tides a little bit. You know, I'm still wondering to see how far it will go, but you know, right. it's exciting for now. Well, you know, like uh, Jack White with Third Man Records. Um, of course, he does yeah. release his music out on you know digital media format and things like that. But you know, you can't just go and buy a CD of Jack White. It's either you you get it you know digitally or you get it on vinyl. You know, everything that well, he produces his own vinyl now well absolutely i mean he's been one of the great innovators i think of uh the revitalization of, of records as a uh, uh well see he's kind of interesting he's sort of like he's sort of like uh kind of like eric clapton is in terms of being a, one of the big guitar singers like jimmy page or somebody like that so he's in the rock world Right. But at the same time, he also has an interest in country blues. Exactly. He's the two, uh, two great Paramount record sets. Um, he puts out the, you know, Sun Records. He reissues several Sun Records. Like, yes. You know, I Got Rhythm and I Walked the Line, you know, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are instant classics. Uh, it's like he's has the the way he's diversified his business with vinyl has been, uh, I think, has been a godsend for the vinyl community. Just in the way that it's gotten people interested, so right. that so that they'll buy regular stuff. Like I think the thing about Jack White that he does as well is he he understands the novelty and he's kind of done the Willy Wonka thing for a while right. with. Uh, you know, kind of putting out really crazy vinyl, which I really enjoy. There's a couple of them that he has. There are picture discs that uh-huh. he does with the, the flashlight. Yes. Uh, you know, the old uh, flashlight cardboard cutout, you know, uh, movie strip thing. Mm-hmm. And so those are, you know, he has stuff like that that's, that's really fun. Uh, but, yeah, uh, he, he puts you know, things on there that, that, you know, makes people want to go out and buy them. Yeah, and, and that, that's that's the thing I think is really, I think it's really important, especially this early in the game for trying to sell people on vinyl because Again, it's the, you know, once people have been taught that they don't have to pay for music, nor do they have to have a physical product with music, they're not gonna, they're not gonna bother. Exactly. If they have something, if it's neat or it's cool, people, you know, I, I always tell my, I tell every audience at my show, they say, I, I, you know, it ain't like people don't want stuff. I mean, people love stuff. Oh, and, exactly. Uh, you know. We just kind of have taken that aspect away from music in the past several years, and I think it again one step at a time. I think people are getting more interested in in buying music, just uh, one for the convenience of having the specific album, like I mentioned before, and then two, just having some cool stuff like um, record store. Day. I have a, an EP that's coming out that are outtakes and alternates from uh, from Prospect Hill uh-huh. that, um, called What Got Over, and I want to go. I want to take that that kind of approach where it's a special limited edition. Record Record, and so people have to go to the store and see if they can get a copy, you know. And right. there's only so many copies of it. I, I try my best to get as many to my fans as I can, but I have to leave it in the fans' hands to go into the store and buy it. So, like on my website, I put a list of all the stores that I sent the records out to, and I, I hope people special order it. I hope people, you know, search it out. I mean, that's what you had to use. You used to have to do that before eBay. That, and, oh, you know, exactly. You wanted, exactly. LP had to call every store in town, you know. Find out who's got it. <laughs> but, yeah, that's 
Right, because it's like, you, you know, that's even the thing. I, I haven't even seen my own age in the way that, it, again, post-digital revolution, you know, like, it's, it's really interesting to see how that's affecting music anyway. I, I could write a whole book on this sort of stuff. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, Dom, we're going to go ahead and play your next song. It is called Too Long I've Been Gone. What can you tell us about that song? Well, that song, you know, I actually wanted to harken back to kind of kind of the older style for me personally. See, the first stuff I got into was 60s folk music and 70s singer-songwriters. So, like, you know, Dylan and Dave Van Ronk and people like that who have gotten some notoriety through Inside Lewin Davis, the movie. And so that was a part of my upbringing and with music, as well as people like Tom Paxton, but also Cat Stevens, Leonard Cohen, and Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. And um, that was that, and it's a song I wrote that was kind of in that sort of style. And um, I, it's about traveling and kind of just, uh, you know, when you get to when you're on the move, you can, you don't really have time to sit and stop. You're right. in constant motion forward. And so it's kind of a song about that, like kind of what do you do when you sit and you think and you process about how how long you've been away, how far you've been gone. Okay. And it's it's a song I was very glad to, to get on the record. Well, all right. Well, here it is. This is too long. I've been gone. Don't need no cup of coffee in the morning I can get up fine, I can get up fine Delia is a pretty girl, but she ain't mine, but she ain't mine Take a little trip to the station, I'm bound to go, I'm bound to go When I'll see my lover again I do not know, I do not know Too long, too long I've been gone Four white walls and a worried mind That's all I have, that's all That's all And when I need someone To talk to I just say Hello wall Too long Too long I've been gone Wipe my tears away They say you're fine You're fine And when the world seems So far away I've got nothing left Except my mind Too long Too long I've been gone Too long Too long I've been gone 
Okay, and we're back, and that was another great song from Dom Clemens. Um, tell us, Dom, is, is, you know, you've opened up for a lot of acts. You, you've been at a lot of famous venues. What was you, I guess, more starstruck about as far as either somebody you've opened up for or a particular place that you've played? Well, I, I you know, one of my favorite places to have played of all time was uh was the Grand Ole Opry. I have to say that. Uh-huh. You know, the first time that the Caroline Chocolates did the Opry, we played the Opry about a dozen different times, I'd right. say, over the years. And so, it, you know, the first time around, though, um, actually this year's been a heavy year for the Opry. Three of their members uh, died. Uh, George yes. Hamilton IV, uh, little Jimmy Dickens, and Jimmy C. Newman, the Cajun Cowboy, right. all passed away just all in the same month. And those three gentlemen, uh, I have a very vivid picture in my mind of the first time I played at the Opry. George Hamilton the Four saw us in uh, at Merlefest in uh, 2007, mm-hmm. and and he he told me that he's he was going to try to put a word in at the Opry, and of course with the Opry, some member has to recommend you to come right. and go on and perform. Exactly. And so so he put a recommendation in for the chocolate drops because he believed in what we did. And uh, then uh, when we were backstage, we were in, I think, dressing room three or four or something like that. George comes in, says hello, shakes hands, and he mm-hmm. says, you want to trade dressing rooms with me? He's like, I'm in <laughs> dressing room number one, the Roy Acuff room. Where the door's and, always open. Yep, and he just uh, he just invited us in, and we were just so excited to have that. And, uh, you know, we're sitting there practicing, and we come across little Jimmy Dickens. He walks by, and he just started tapping his foot and clapping his hands and talking about <laughs> how much he loved the old-time string band music. And then uh, right. right before we went on, I sat with Jimmy C. Newman and talked to him about 15 minutes. Uh, just He was just talking about how important the music that we were playing was and how he grew up knowing that there were, you know, that there were, there were black country music. There were black people who enjoyed the rural southern music and even though you don't see it in a book or on tv that much that was a part of their experience growing up right and so they all all of them mentioned that to me that first night but uh that's probably the most memorable thing i got right off you know uh, one thing i don't think a lot of people knows is that even if george hamilton wasn't playing the opry chances are he was backstage because he loved to greet people back there. He loved to tell some stories about the Opry. You know, in the, uh, I guess the living room area, I can't remember exactly what they call it, but they've got that big mural that Archie Campbell painted back there, and he loved telling the story about that mural and how it came about. Oh, yeah. It was, uh, you know, he was a, he was such a, a wonderful gentleman and, and a very special man. It was really, it was really sad to see, see him go this year. And, uh, yeah, he, you know, that was the thing. If he was just, he was just the kindest fellow he could be when we were there. Made us feel welcome every time we were over there. And, uh, yeah, that, that's a, one thing he loved to do. He, he loved to stay back there and greet people, talk to people, tell them history and stories of the Opry and things like that. And, uh, I had, I've, I've talked about this before. I had the pleasure of going back there and, you know, you know, I got to stand in the dressing room with Old Crow Medicine Show as they was practicing. And, you know, that just blew my mind. I'm a huge Old Crow Medicine Show fan, you know, but there's just so much that goes on before a show back there. I don't think people understand how hectic it is at the same time. Oh, yeah. And, and you know, the funny thing too is the, uh, a couple of years after that, you know, they had the big flood. Right. Nashville, the first one, and um, and you know they moved the the Opry back into the Ryman because uh-huh. Opryland had gotten flooded. Exactly. And, uh, <laughs> all that action in that one bit little building. 
compared to Opryland, kind of you know spread out really nicely. Right. It was, uh, and it, it it gets so hectic. But I mean, so many good times back there. You can you can run into people that you haven't seen in years, or uh, you know, you you crisscross ways like you know. Buddy Miller, who produced uh, produced our record, um, it was great to be able to see him several times back there. Colin Linden, who um, worked with T-Bone Burnett on the Oh Brother Walkout soundtrack, but mm-hmm. a lot of guitar work on that. Uh, got to see him several times. Uh, Don Waz, got to see Jackson, Gene Shepard over there, Sonny Osborne. I mean, it was what a what an amazing place. And I mean, it, and it still continues to be. Like even the exactly. Medicine Show mentioning them, they're they're now now they're members of the Opry. Exactly, and that they're they're carrying it on uh, into was its ninetieth year this year. I think they're celebrating. Uh-huh. You know? Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's uh, well deserved. That you know they they deserve to be a member, and that's you know the Opry needed that. They needed somebody that could bring back some of the the string band style, you know, of music. With everything so mainstream now, you know they they get up on stage and it kind of takes you back a little bit. Oh, absolutely, and it's like it's them. Marty Stewart still kept up a really good yes. sound, and also, of course, Leroy Troy and uh, the Tennessee Mafia Judd Band. They're, uh-huh. they're another group that's just been they, they keep all that wonderful stuff on, and uh, it, yeah, it's been a it's been really interesting to see see the times change with that. I, it is, and and, and, um, and you speak of them, I can't remember his name, but he's the one that plays the uh, the Dobro with them. He actually was down here one Saturday morning here in Milan playing down at that little music store I was telling you about. Every Saturday, all right. You know, every Saturday morning, there's a there's a group of older gentlemen that, that gather down there, and they play for two or three hours, you know, just a lot of the old classics or bluegrass, just, you know, whatever they feel like playing. And, you know, the, the owner of the store got there that morning, and, and he was standing there waiting to get in, and he come in, checked out the store, and... He said, hey, can I, can I borrow that Dobro right there on the wall? I'd like to go up and play with these guys for a little bit. And said he sat there for two or three hours and played with them, and they all had a big time. Oh, I can imagine. I, I believe that's Gil Landry there. And that, oh, he, I mean, I can imagine he'd have, he'd have quite a time. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a great thing. You know, even Gil, he's got his album that he's just I, put out. Uh, yes, I've seen that here just in the past couple of weeks. And uh, old Crowley got the Grammy for a, the best folk album this yes. year, and I think that that's, that's really well-deserved as well. That's a, well, it uh, is. It's very exciting times, you know? Well, and one thing, you know, that Old Crow and, and other bands like that have done, you know, they've, they've helped draw attention back to that style of music, which is a oh, which yeah. is a good thing, taking, taking people back to the roots of music. Oh, definitely. Well, kind of like uh, I was talking about before with the vinyl records, I feel like people in general are, you know, I... I I don't think that people want to get retrogressive and 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 try to try to be a throwback, but I think that right. just having the diversity of the choice to have exactly. more old timey type music compared to modern music, I think that's something that you know I think that's breaking down a lot more than it it did ten years ago, and that's something that again is very exciting in the folk field because you know the folk has always been kind of a specialty in music, so right. The, the fact that there can there can be room for everything now because you know everybody gets to customize their own playlist nowadays. So oh, exactly. You don't have to. And, you know, we and, we've and talked about this quite a bit, and there was a songwriter here in the studio one day. His name's Brandon Barnett, and uh, this he he made this comment, and it just stuck with me. He said, "You know," he said, "in this day and time, the gatekeeper is gone." He said. Yeah. 
you know, you can control what you want to listen to online. You can control, you know, how you want to record. With now all the all the media that's available now, you can do just about anything you want at home. You know, and, and he said, you know, and, and just like we're doing here now, you know, we're we're doing a podcast out of my house here. And as of right now, or last time I checked, we were in 24 states and four other countries. Oh, wow. You know, and that... And that's not even any type of mainstream. That's just me recording here at the house. I, you know, I put it on my host site, share it with Twitter and Facebook and Stitcher Radio, and and it just kind of grows from there. You know, and it's just kind of amazing. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, the thing I'm also seeing is while there, it's look with the diversifying, I feel like people are 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 really enjoying seeing podcasts and personalized radio shows, DJing, whatever it might be. Right. Just because, you know, after an era of so much, um, you know, like, a, a, you know, codified radio and uh, right. just uh, corporate corporate uh, clear channel stuff, I mean, like, exactly. just having a choice, kind of like, it almost goes back to the era of, like, Wolfman Jack and stuff like that. Right. Of, once you put, put those, if you put those records out there, you know somebody's going to hear them and they're they're going to love it. And you know if you keep doing it for a long time, it it, it can only it can only grow, which is again a very beautiful thing. It is, it you is, know, like, and, well, it, well, and, like, and, and, and I, everything is so accessible now. It just makes it so much easier, you know, to put things out or to get your music out for everybody to hear. Oh, definitely. I mean, that was one of the reasons I started uh, last year, uh, you know, when uh, when Pete Seeger passed away, I had this concept come to me that it was the year of the folk singer. And and so I decided to just put that out there on social media. I didn't really try to to frame I didn't really try to make it too specific in any sort of way, but you mentioned the gatekeepers. I I felt like, you know, Pete Seeger's been one of the main gatekeepers for folk music since the beginning of the genre mm-hmm. and with him going it, you know just being able to say hey folk singing and i just put out anything that seems like folk music and that to me i'm i have a pretty broad definition of folk music right. so and so I, I just figured anybody who knew what that meant to them they'd they'd respond to it and you know it's it's a again it's not mainstream but it's like uh people responded enough to it so far that well exactly it's been really cool to see See what's reflected out of that, you know, and I think it's a really excellent time for that too. Well, and one thing that we talk about, and I wonder about, is you know, I don't understand really what does it take today to really even get on mainstream because there are various artists like yourself that has actually got a Grammy in their hand, but you still don't turn the radio on and, and hear on mainstream radio. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm wondering about that myself. That's the thing. I'm kind of, I'm kind of I'm waiting to see what all that means. I still feel like we're in a spot now where definite transitionary point where I'm not sure. I'm not sure what what's happening with the the media as a whole yet. Exactly, and you and you still got you know another example. Oak Crow Medicine Show with Wagon Wheel. You know that was one of the most popular songs on college campuses, but you never heard it on the radio until Darius Rucker recorded it, and then the song. You know, went straight to the top. Yeah, and and I think that that's gonna be that's gonna be an interesting thing to to see as as time goes on. Is is will the, will the music industry restart itself like it used to? Because if right. you think about it, it's kind of the same thing. Like with uh, I don't know, like even like Pat Boone with with Little Richard or guys like that. You know, where they you'd have you'd have the, the artist who is the pioneer. They would do the song. And mm-hmm. then you have a more mainstream type version, make it a hit. Right. And then people usually go, people usually go back to the to the, the original story, songwriter. But, yeah, but you know, 
but you know, it's music, so you know, people don't have to if they don't want to. So it's oh, like exactly. kind of an interesting, it's an interesting dynamic to see coming up again, just in the way that, again, like vinyl records, you know, I wonder if uh, we'll get back to a, a time when most artists will think about a, an LP as a full statement right? Uh, compared to just singles, you know. And more and more, uh, you know, more and more artists today are releasing albums on vinyl. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, how can you, how can you go wrong with it? I exactly. Mean, there's a little pops and cracks, but... Uh, but the, I mean, well, that's you know, a, to me, that's what makes it. You know, that's yeah, that that's that's just the the love of vinyl right there. Hearing the pops and the cracks, and you know, but you open up a brand new record and put it on the record player. You know, the sound is just amazing. Yeah, man. You know, I, and I could be wrong, but I I believe a vinyl is is it recorded in sixty four bit? I believe it is, and and but it 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 goes it goes up and down based on on how uh, how you want to how you want to print the vinyl up, you know. Right. Uh, one of the things that's tough about vinyl, though, is that it does co- it does cost a little money to make it, that's, and that's the right. thing that is uh, it, it's tricky, you know, because if you if you order a thousand vinyl and you're not a mainstream artist, you know, right, <laughs> you, exactly, you have some a lot of boxes in your house, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's kind of a funny sort of funny sort of thing with vinyl as well where it's transitioning you know you're starting to see a lot more interest but the machinery still has to build itself up you know i i, I still think it's interesting I, a lot of a lot of good industrial jobs could come out come come together if people wanted to oh absolutely to absolutely <laughs> well don i tell you we're gonna go ahead and play your next song it's called money never runs out what can you tell us about this song well that uh that song is one that was originally recorded by by a fellow by the name of banjo joe and his, his real name was Gus Cannon, but he went under the stage name of Banjo Joe, and he recorded with uh, for Paramount Records in the the late 1920s, and then he recorded with Victor Records with a group of Cannon's Jug Stompers, and that's what he's more well known for. Okay. And um, he's one he's one of my favorite uh, banjo songsters to have recorded, and one of the few five string players to record kind of a uh, blues and and uh, 1890s pop numbers and, and uh, minstrel tunes. And I just really love that song. It's it's actually two different uh, sheet music uh, songs from the 1890s. Uh-huh. Uh, one called My Money Never Gives Out, another one called I Don't Care If I Never Wake Up. When Gus Cannon recorded, he has it just kind of like smashed together as one composite piece. And I just loved the number. He had played it for a lot of years and wanted to record it for the album. And then around the time that I started the record I had uh, I did an article for the Oxford American Southern Music Issue for the state of Tennessee and uh, I did a, a huge article on Gus Cannon on another number that he recorded for Paramount Records called Can You Blame the Colored Man so I kind of wanted to I wanted to bring in you know my own repertoire that I picked up with with me having played My Money Never Runs Out while um also getting uh getting a little bit of a shine a little light on that Oxford American article and then uh, then uh Guy Davis, who joined me on a good deal of the record, provided some wonderful guitar. And so I just kept it real straight ahead on that one. Well, we're going to go ahead and play that one and let the listeners kind of hear what you're talking about. Boys, he hangs around. I love my hops, is he? Early one morning. 
Jesus Joker ran away to roam the world was said. I believe I'll go back to bed, man, I give up my head. I don't care if I never wake up. Yes, I don't care if I never wake up till the birds is true with me. Now I'm coming around here with my big boat. I'm gonna run them up a tree. Nothing like a living like a money king. Drink from a silver cup. I eat pork and pears. I eat out of my class. I don't care if I never wake up. Bleed. song dom uh i'll tell you what i want to go ahead and, and thank you for being on the show today um you know we appreciate anybody that takes the time out to do this show be it either live in the studio or by phone but uh we do ask that you know all of our listeners will go to our website which is tennesseebackport.podbean.com and we ask that everybody go and, and check out the website check out some of the sponsor links on there you know, and also if you like what you hear, you know, we don't run a lot of commercials in this program, but uh, if you like what you hear, you know, we ask that you give us a donation to help us keep our equipment up and, and so on. You know, we, we're not taking the money and just sticking it in our pocket, but, you know, it seems like here just about every week I'm making an upgrade to the system to make it sound just a little bit better. And, uh, of course, you know, we want to make everybody sound as good as possible. So if you don't mind going and go to tennesseebackports.podbean.com, uh, you know, shoot a donation our way. It's through PayPal, so you don't have to worry about, you know, credit card fraud or anything like that. Um, also, you, you can hear us on Stitcher Radio. Uh, you just look up the Back Porch with Jay and Brandon, and all of our episodes will pop up there. 
Um, also, there's a new radio station here in town called Hub City Radio. We're being streamed on TuneIn Radio, as long as other digital media outlets. So thanks to Hub City Radio, they're going to air us on the radio station, which is going to get us out to these other digital media outlets. So we, we ask that you go and support them as well. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Our email address is on the page if you need to get in contact with us. But Dom, it's it's really been been a pleasure having you on the show today. You know, like I said, uh, you know, I've liked the Carolina Chocolate Drops for, for a few years now. I think especially you, you're amazing of all the instruments that you can play. You know, I know you play the banjo and harmonica, you know, the the guitar, the bones. You know, it's, it's just amazing all the different things that you play. And, uh, Dom, we're going to close this, this show out with a song called Georgia Drumbeat. What can you tell us about that song? Well... That one was uh, one of the great experiments that I got to do in the studio. Um, you know, like I mentioned with My Money Never Runs Out, I kept that one pretty straight ahead. If you hear the Gus Cannon one, I did put my own little twists on it, but for the most part, I used the same arrangement on that original recording, while Georgia Drumbeat, exact opposite. I first heard the song from uh, a recording that was done for the Music Maker Relief Foundation by one of the artists who's since passed away, James Davis. And um, Georgia Drumbeat was the style of music that he did. So his father and uncle played fife and drum music, which um, a lot of times people may have heard the Mississippi style of fife and drum music. And it's just a rural country style of uh, music with bass, drum, snare, and fife off of the colonial and revolutionary war era, early American music, and it's just kind of this rural picnic gathering music. And so James Davis, he took those melodies and put them on the electric guitar and drum set. So he has a drummer playing with him, and then he plays this really hot electric guitar with with these really great grooves and just real simple melodies but grooves. Right. And uh, really similar to a lot of the old-time banjo music in, in its own sort of way. And so I kind of took the idea of that music and made that the foundation. So I took it back to its kind of fife and drum roots by having marching bass, drum, and snare, and then I playing the guitar lick. And so I had Guy Davis in the studio, and, well, I, I asked Guy if he wanted to play a harmonica part, and Guy, Guy proceeded to play this awesome electric harmonica <clears throat> uh, line over the, the melody and uh, over the foundation that we laid out, which was just amazing. And then I had Brian Horton playing uh, with a soprano saxophone on the track as well. So I had this harmonica part, and then um, I was actually influenced by an early Albert Collins track called The Freeze, and it has, a, it has a tenor saxophone solo. So I just had mentioned to Brian, oh yeah, see if you can do something that would be really neat with the harmonica. And so he, he twisted a little soprano saxophone part around it that just I mean it just took the, the track up to a whole nother level and it's, it's one of my favorite tracks on the record even though it's very short instrumental I just wanted to get just a strong flavor and vibe out of that one and that was the thing about the record too I wanted to make it a concise quick record instead of right. languishing too long in anything and so Georgia Drumbeat's just a short quick track but it's wow what a what a sound well and if I'm not <laughs> mistaken too the the drums was the very first instrument you learned how to play is that correct that's correct and uh, that's something that I've kept in in every all the music that I I, I performed is a uh, rhythm and beats and textures and how subdivision of different rhythm works within music. I mean, a lot of times people are just so used to boom, chi, boom, chi, boom, boom, chi, and that's right. as complex as their ideas of rhythm can go. 
And while that rhythm is okay, boom, chi, boom, chi, it, what's cool is that you can do boom, chi, boom, boom, chi, chi, boom, chi, boom, chi, chi, you know, and that's something I learned with a lot of old-time string band music was how to use that sort of subdivision along with, you know, ideas of hip-hop, ideas of R&B, and putting that into the string band context in a way that would serve both types of music without watering down each type. And that was something that I've just picked up over time. So right. my uh, starting out playing drums was really essential to, to me putting those ideas together. Well, Don, before we play this Georgia drum beat, what kind of advice would you give kids today that are starting to learn instruments and are getting frustrated? What kind of what kind of advice can you give them to stay with it? Well, I just I say keep on persevering. And one thing that I stress to a lot of people is that when you're learning an instrument, don't worry about making your own sound at first. Just copy whatever you find interesting personally in the music. Because a lot of times, everybody says, "Oh, well, yeah, you just find your find your own style. You don't need to copy anybody." But it's really it makes the learning easier if you learn how to just follow whatever thing that interested you in the music, whether you play it well or whether you play it badly. Uh, you know, like Hal and Wolf, for example, when he when he yodels, he said that he's trying to imitate Jimmy Rogers. I mean, that's not a good Jimmy Rogers impersonation that Hal and Wolf does, but it's his own amazing. But style he puts his own thing. twist on it. Exactly, and so that's one of the things that I think, just kind of mentally, I would tell to anybody who's learning an instrument: find out what you want, find out your own personal thing that you want to learn, learn how to do it exactly, and then. You can't help but be yourself when you play music. So right, and then you can build your sound on, on that. That's right, and, and that's something that I, I would recommend. And also keep listening. There's, there's, there's always something else out there. And if you keep searching, you'll keep finding new things. And, and that's something that even now, after all the records and all the years I've been doing this, I still find stuff that's brand new that I just I didn't even know existed. And even when I thought I knew everything about a style of music, there's always something new out there. There's always something that pops up. Yeah. Well, Dom, we, we really appreciate you being with us here on the back porch today. It's been a real treat getting you know being able to talk to you and, and learn more about your music and sound. But uh, we're going to go ahead and close with Georgia Drumbeat. And uh, anytime you want to come back on, just let me know and we'll get you on. Sounds like a plan. Well, thank you again for having me. Oh, it's not a problem at all. We appreciate you.
between Nashville and Memphis lies Exit 82. The Jackson, Tennessee area is a hotbed of extremely talented musical performers. Join WNBJ for the Exit 82 show. You'll see and hear an amazing variety of original music performed by Jackson area talent. Exit 82 airs every Saturday following Saturday Night Live on Jackson's NBC 39.